0: Welcome in, folks, to a very special edition of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. My name is James Navo from NBC5 Chicago. Normally, you guys will hear Jay Zawoski of 670 The Score and the I'm Fat Podcast. Normally, he's on the show as a co-host. Today, I'm flying solo because we have a very special guest on this episode of the podcast. Incidentally enough, it is Jay Zawoski of 670 The Score and the I'm Fat Podcast. And most importantly of all... The author of the brand spanking new book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Chicago Blackhawks. Jay Zawoski, bestselling author, is here with us today to celebrate the release of his book. It officially comes out on Tuesday.
1: Mr. Zawoski, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast.
0: Yeah, it really took a lot of uh, strings to be pulled. <laughs> I know that uh, your agent was very uh, rude on the phone, I do have to say. Um, well,
1: she's a 10-year-old girl, so she'll do yeah. that. Yeah.
0: She just had a lot of really uh, weird demands, I will say. Uh, but anyway, it was really it was easy, I guess, to get the candy and to uh, rescue the kitten from the burning building. So we are good to go on the negotiations, good to go on the books. So, Jay, yeah, I guess there's a... Uh, Really, uh, there's one important question, I think, above all the others that I do have to ask you right away. Why wasn't James Neveau cited in the book whatsoever? Like, you had a couple of Madhouse Enforcer stories that I would written over the years, and I thought that was nice that you had cited those, but you never cited James Neveau directly. Was that a slight against me? What was that?
1: Uh, yes, that was an intentional decision <laughs> to rub it in your face that uh no i i i didn't use a couple of your pieces i know for sure and they should be in the uh sources and the source material right in the front there
0: i'm just saying that the name james neveau did not appear in print you did have the madhouse enforcer blog that i wrote on nbc chicago it's been rebranded blah 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 but you did have several links to that in the uh i guess you would call it the index of the book so i guess i was in there a little bit but i just thought it was interesting that you know you just kind of omitted your uh your podcast co-host from that i thought that was rude i did however want to point out all razzing aside that jay did sign my copy of the book that i got also got a really sweet brett hull card out of the deal i thought that was pretty awesome uh, his inscription to me, and I'm gonna quote this verbatim because it's so awesome. <clears throat> without you, this book doesn't happen boom i I got what I wanted. I got Jay to sign my book with a very nice personal message so Mr. Zawoski, I do thank you for that at least
1: you're welcome i'm i it's true without you, this little hockey thing that you and I have going together is not what it is. And that's part of the reason I got picked to do this book. And I, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious without what we've done for the last six years that a lot of the opportunities that both of us get aren't happening, right? Sure. So uh, yes, I literally could not have done this without you. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you. And I again, I enjoyed every page of the book now that we're off of the kidding phase of this. And now that we're on the nitty gritty, let's discuss this you know, tome this excellent book. And it really is really good. I really did enjoy reading it. It was a great trip down memory lane. And I I guess like the, probably the ideal place to start then is just with the title itself. It's called the big 50, the men and moments that made the Chicago Blackhawks. It would kind of make sense then that the first question would be, what was kind of your governing thought behind the process and how, did you as an author pick those big fifty items that you discussed? What kind of process did you go through
1: with that? Well, I was glad it was called The Men in Moments because it didn't that did not require me to rank anything. I could just kind of pick fifty items and arrange them as I saw fit. I start the book with Stan Makita, the second chapter is Patrick Kane, because I thought that those two guys for their place in Blackhawk's history should probably lead off the book. Um so basically what I did was when I got the concept, talked to the publisher a little bit about how I was seeing it. Like I wanted a little bit of the old, but more of the new in this book because so much has been written about those old teams over the years that I wanted to make sure that the newer dynasty got some attention. Uh, and also the uh, the publisher wanted me to put some personal notes in there and some personal feelings because he said, there's a portion of people that will be buying this book because you wrote it. So we want to have your experience in there as well. So that was sort of what, with all those sort of things in mind, I sat down, you know, literally put pen to paper and said, okay, what are the, what are the things I can't miss, right? So these guys, these moments, okay, what sort of peripheral, and then by the time I had, I would say probably 75 to 100 ideas, I made an A, B, and C column. So A is absolutely must cover, B is probably, C is maybe, right? And then As I got through all that, kind of culled all the things out, some of the things I combined. Because one of the chapters I did is called The Depth of the Dynasty, Mm -hmm. where I sort of cover Boland and Jalmerson and all all those peripheral guys who were hugely important to the team, but weren't star players. It probably didn't warrant their own chapters. So I was able to take some of the ideas and make them into one, and that's how I got down to 50. It wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. and of course, there's things that looking back on, I probably was like, ah, maybe I should have done this differently or whatever. But the book's written, and it's <laughs> it's out <laughs> on Tuesday, so there's not much I can do. Um, but yeah, that was kind of it. Like, okay, get you know the first seventy-five to hundred ideas, not rank them so much as sort them, and then go from there. And that's what I did. And I, and I don't think once I got that list of a hundred, I don't think I strayed or of uh, fifty, the final fifty. I don't think I strayed too much from that. I, I pretty much stuck with it.
0: There were a couple of things that you brought up there that I did have noted down that I wanted to talk to you about. So I'm kind of glad that I was able to kind of glean a little bit of kind of the method to the madness, so to speak, I guess, of how you kind of went through the process of writing the book. You had mentioned some of the more underappreciated players, and I know we're going to get to that as this interview goes on. But I did want to focus one of the first things that struck me about the book and honestly, one of my favorite things about the book is those personal stories that you've told. Obviously, as your podcast co-host, sorry, I'm dropping the whole like dispassionate observer thing for a second. <laughs> as your podcast co-host, obviously, you've told a lot of stories. You've told extensively about how your daughter's birth was connected to the Blackhawks, the game you were watching while that was going on, etc. I don't think on the podcast you've ever talked about your reaction when Hope told you she was pregnant (laughs) can you uh please share that uh experience with our listeners because it was definitely to me at least in a book full of highlights it was one of those moments that you just it gave me a really good chuckle and I really needed the laugh when I read it
1: so it was the opening game of the 2009 season and it was the Capitals and the opponent is escaping my mind. But knowing that it, it was, was the M- Boston Bruins. Yeah, I figured it was either Boston or Philly since it was yep. on uh, NBC Sports Net. So I'm sitting here watching the game just sort of casually. I'm in my apartment in Lamont and hopes so you know, just doing her normal stuff behind me. I'm not really noticing just an, it's a totally normal night, you know, just a totally non noteworthy day. And she walks in and says, "Hey, I'm like, hey, what's up?" And I'm just sitting there, you know, sort of half tuned in, as husbands uh, tend to do. And uh, she goes, "I'm pregnant." And my reaction was not was not exactly what I what I hoped it would have been, but it was uh, quote shut the f up was the uh, that was the that was my reaction when I was told that my wife is pregnant by my wife, and that was not great. But then, obviously. When I saw she was serious, I thought she was kidding. When I saw she was serious, um, things got much better and tears flowed and all those things. And went out for a celebratory dinner and just had a really, really great couple of days after that. Because, I don't know, this may be getting too personal, but who cares. Um, I was always, you know, I always thought it was going to be difficult to have kids. I don't know why. Like, it was... Um, I, maybe because I'm diabetic, I figured something would go wrong and there would be some sort of grinding process to it. I know a lot of people go through that. A lot of people go through that. I think a lot of people I know go through that. So I was sort of working with the assumption of, yeah, it'll be probably something similar, but as soon as hope and I decided to try, it worked. So I was, that's why I was so caught off guard. Like I w it wasn't even a thought in my mind that that could be happening. Right, so right for for me to go from zero to, oh my god, we're having a baby, <laughs> caught me off guard a little bit.
0: Yeah, and it definitely it came across well in the book, and you did use the profanity in the book. You quoted yourself accurately. I was testing you. Yeah, good job acing that test. I I guess for listeners who haven't been with the show like throughout kind of the big Navowski slash Madhouse run guess you can also tell the story about uh, when Addie was born because that also had hockey slash Blackhawks connections
1: yeah so throughout the whole process of the pregnancy like I said I found out Hope was pregnant on opening day of 2010 or the 09-10 season so obviously that's the year the Hawks won the first of those three cups and you know they just come off the Western Conference final uh, losing to Detroit but probably arriving sooner than people thought they would. And there was a big buzz about the hawks all year so anytime we would go to a doctor visit, the nurses or the, you know, the ultrasound techs or whatever, they all uh, they all referred to Addie as baby Stanley and hope and I didn't find out that Addie was a girl until the moment she was born. We wanted to be surprised and we had just been assu- like working with this assumption That the baby was going to be a boy because Addie was born with bilateral clubfoot, which we knew we found that out while Hope was pregnant. We didn't find that when she was born. And that's I think the numbers were like three out of four cases are boys. So we had all these sort of working assumptions that it was going to be a boy. So and of course, the baby Stanley thing led to that. So we're going through that. The whole process. Hope's due June 8th of 2010. That was her due date. But May 21st is when her water broke and we headed to the hospital. So that night, May 21st, 2010, was game three of the Hawks and Sharks Western Conference final. Dustin Bufflin won that game in overtime and Hope had been in labor since I'm trying to think. I was about to leave for work when her water broke. So probably around like 630 or 7 is when we got things together and started to wait for the call to go to the hospital. So it had been a while. So th- that game ends. Remember that was uh, that game ended late. So it was like around eleven thirty or so. So as soon as the game ends, is when hopes labor kicks in. So she goes into labor for I think it was six hours or so. It, she was in labor for a long time, but the hard labor was about six hours, and then Eddie was born at at three a.m. Like three, I think it was three fourteen a.m. on May twenty second. So that was that. No- it was the morning after the Hawks had won. Uh, game three to, to and they were going to sweep the sharks the next day. and I remember watching that game on a tiny little hospital TV, <laughs> you know <laughs> gra, grainy video, and I'm holding Addie and Hopes laying next to me and you know, hope and I who started dating by going to Hawks games together. that's how we were set up. like, oh hey, Jay, meet Hope she's a huge Hawks fan. This is in 2001 when no one's a Hawks fan. I was like, oh my God, a Hawks fan. Wow, great. To-. I mean, I remember when I was at Lewis before I knew Hope, because I didn't meet Hope until the day I graduated, even though we both went there. Um, I used to look for people to go to Hawks games with me, and no one would go. I'd be like, come on, it's eight bucks. I'll pay for parking. Just get in the car with me and let's go. And people were like, eh, I don't want to go. They suck. I don't want to go. <laughs> um, so to have a partner with me to go to games from here on out was really nice. And that, I mean, the Hawks were the backdrop of our whole relationship. So to have everything sort of culminate within a couple weeks there of adding being born, the Hawks winning the Cup, it was just very symbolic of our relationship.
0: Yeah, and you obviously spoke a lot about the dark ages of the Blackhawks and kind of your connections that you drew between that and your relationship with Hope, and I always like kind of enjoyed those uh, portions of the book for sure because it definitely gives kind of the glimpse into the the weird like kind of curve of being a Blackhawks fan during this day and age, whether it was the ages of like Eddie Belfour and Jeremy Roenick, Chris Chelios, and then the big-time lows after everybody got traded away, and then kind of the ascent back up into the hockey elite, and it was just really cool to follow that story through, oftentimes, the prism of your personal journey, and I definitely enjoyed that a lot. Another thing that I really enjoyed, I think, in this was kind of the idea that your memory can be sharpened about these types of events, right? Like you look back at things like the Blackhawks rivalry with the Canucks. You look back at the 09 Western Conference final. You look back at all these things and you feel like you should remember a lot of that because you're either a hockey fan, a hockey observer, whatever hat you happen to be wearing at that time. And I still found myself learning a lot of different things that I'd either forgotten about or I just flat out didn't know about that era Kind of like Dennis Savard's relationship with Patrick Kane, the way that Kane spoke about that was very similar to what a lot of players were saying when Joel Quinville got fired by the Blackhawks. That kind of stuff to me stood out. As you were writing this book, were there those types of things for you that as you researched them and as you compared them to your memory that kind of took you by surprise?
1: It's funny, thinking back on those series against the Canucks, we remember how humiliating and heartbreaking it was for that team to be on the losing end against the Hawks so many times but going play by play game by game was really a reminder of how brutal it must have been to be a Canucks fan the other thing was and this was sort of validated when they were replaying Hawks games during the pandemic when you watch and when you read about these games apart from taking them in in real time when the nerves are involved right where the stress is involved i think we forget how great those hawks teams were and how dominant they were and while the game felt very in doubt for us all the time there were a lot of times where the hawks were just kicking the ass of their opponents up and down the ice and maybe the score didn't say say it or show it as much and that's what caused the stress but they they were dominant most of the time during that dynasty era And it was just a good reminder to sort of go back and remember, you know, that fact that they were as good as they were. And also just recapping some of those snapshot moments that we have. I think that's how everybody sort of looks at championship seasons is remember this, remember this, remember this. And those are all the big moments. But the little things in a regular season or earlier in the playoffs that built up to those things, I think, can sort of lose Uh, some memory you know for people so I think I hope I did a good job in the book of rekindling some of those memories for people
0: you also did a good job in the book of kind of revealing some like kind of lower key stories that probably if they had happened today probably would have gotten some massive play like the first thing I think of when I think of that was your story about Dustin Bufflin And how he used to approach his interviews when he was doing them with Jesse Rogers. And I was kind of hoping that you could share with our listeners some of what made Big Buff such a memorable and uh, colorful character, I would say, in the history of the Blackhawks.
1: So before I started doing the Bud Light on the Glass events that got everybody traded. But I say
0: before before you started cursing everybody, (laughs) we can say it.
1: Yeah. So Jesse Rogers, who's now the Cubs reporter for ESPN, used to host them because he was the pre- and post-game host when the Hawks had games on the score. So that was a natural job for him. And Buff would go out and look, like Buff was, what, 22, 23 at the time, coming in the money for the first time, coming into some fame for the first time. That dude got after it. He liked the party, and he's he's still like that. And he would – so these shows were live on the air, whereas the Bullet on the Glass ones were not live on the air. And uh, he Dustin would get after him, man. He would drink during the breaks. He'd always have a beer during the show. He would stay and often shut down the bar when the show was over. And that's what started. If you've ever been to a Hawks sanctioned event like that, you'll see that starting with the 09 10 season, or maybe it was the 08 0 whatever season it was, after those Buffalo 1s stopped, there was always a Blackhawks representative at those events to sort of keep an eye on the players. And make sure that things were going okay, and that they got home. They were picked up and dropped off by limousines. I think they learned some lessons uh, throughout that. And I think Buff had a limo to and from these events too. I'm I'm not. I don't want to imply that he was driving drunk. He was not. But they wanted to make sure. The Hawks wanted to make sure that nothing could go wrong, and that they had the watchful eye on their players all the time. Because we would say, "Look, it's a Bud Light or a Budweiser event. Like we'd have beers on the table." Sure. And you would say to whatever player was like, hey, you just feel free to just sip a beer. He's like, no, I can't. I'm working. And that they approached it like work. And I have to approach it the same way because I'm broadcasting. But from after Buff on, there must have been some strong message sent of, hey, you know, <laughs> we got we to gotta, we gotta get, get control of these events because as the Hawks spotlight rises, so is the attention, uh, positive and negative. So had that happened a year later, yeah, it probably would have been a way bigger story.
0: I I could use this opportunity to kind of turn into uh, some of the changes that were made when Rocky Wirtz came on board and when he hired uh, John McDonough as the team president. But instead, I'm going to steer the car more towards the drinking stories because there was another one that you shared in the book, and it was a gentleman named Alfie Moore. And I had never heard of Alfie Moore I guess that makes me a bad Blackhawks fan or whatever but what did Alfie Moore do to earn a place not only in Blackhawks lore but a coveted spot in your big
1: 50. So in 1938 the Hawks are in the cup final against the Maple Leafs and Blackhawks goalie Mike Caracas breaks his toe and can't play his backup Paul Goodman had not traveled with the team so Alfie Moore is a minor league goalie who the Hawks had some uh, connections with. He played with the New York Americans, and he was drunk when he played goal for the Blackhawks. They threw him in the shower. They started covering him, you know, spraying him with water, pouring coffee down his throat. Uh, they said he had about 10 or a dozen drinks before the game, and this was the only thing the Hawks could do, put him in net. And he won, only gave up one goal against the Toronto Maple Leafs. And uh, <laughs> fortunately, after that, uh, Goodman was able to join the Hawks for for game two and the rest of the series. Uh, but that was uh, that. that's something that would just never happen in pro sports now. You know, yeah. but this is the this is the 1938 version of Scott Foster, right? Like. <laughs> We need a goalie. If Scott Foster was drunk and it was the hammered. Stanley Cup final. <laughs> right. So maybe people need to start wearing Alfie Moore jerseys around the United Center. That would be pretty cool. But uh, sadly, um, as, as happened with a lot of guys from this era, they would just, you know, when they had an alcohol problem, it was hard to, hard to fix Yeah, uh, and drink himself out of the game. Uh, but, man, uh, that, that's one of the stories that I didn't know because so little is known about those, those first three Cup teams. Or the first two, really, actually, the ones from the 30s are the ones that are lesser known. And I had to do a lot of research on those and just finding that story I thought was great. And that was sort of my approach with the whole thing was I want Hawks fans to learn something. You know, I want them to know they know about the star players. They know that Stan Mikita was, you know, an awesome playmaker and the best Blackhawk ever. And they know Bobby Hull was strong as an ox and had a killer slap shot. What, what don't they know? And that was that's what I wanted to do when I wrote this book that I sort of set out with that mindset night and, and I hope I think I think I did I think I accomplished it pretty well.
0: We're enjoying this uh, stroll down memory lane Jay but unfortunately we do have to do that thing where we hop to a commercial break. I know. It's sad for everybody involved, but we promise you'll be right back. We promise you we'll have a lot more great stories from this book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Chicago Blackhawks. We're going to keep talking with noted author and intellectual. I think he's smoking a pipe right now, actually. Jay Zawoski right here on the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast.
1: The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. Dr. Squatch is an all-natural, handmade-in-the-USA soap, hair care, cologne, beard oil, just general wellness company. You're going to want to check out drsquatch.com at the top right corner of the page there. You'll take that Squatch quiz. Once you're ready to check out, enter that promo code MADHOUSE20 and you'll save 20% on your order and help the podcast at the same time. What do we recommend? Well, that's very easy. My favorite is the Cool Fresh Aloe Soap. The Cold Brew Cleanse has become a favorite as well. The Pine Tower is the flagship soap for Dr. Squatch, but really that Squatch quiz will tell you everything you need to know about joining us here at Squatch Nation. Get yourself some thick bricks at drsquatch.com and don't forget that promo code MADHOUSE20.
0: Welcome back into the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. My name is James Naveau from NBC5 Chicago. Normally I have a co-host on this show, but today he's been put in the hot seat and I'm doing my best impression of an NPR host reviewing a book. I'm talking to Jay Zawoski about his brand new bestseller, the Big 50, the Men in Moments that made the Chicago Blackhawks. And uh, yeah, Jay, we're looking forward to continuing that conversation right now. So there's definitely one guy that you kind of gave me a new appreciation for, and we'll get to him in a moment. I did want to get back to like one of those things that I learned about Blackhawks history though, and something that I like knew this statistic, but I didn't really kind of get the full context of it and how it all kind of came to an end the winningest coach in blackhawks history not Joel quenville knew that i knew it was billy ray i did not know how billy like how billy ray got fired why he got fired like that story to me was absolutely bonkers like i cannot believe that that actually happened if i'm being frank it's kind of like a chicago bullsy Type thing, right? Is that a fair uh assessment of the Billy Ray saga?
1: I think it's fair to say, and for the people that do know this story, it's pretty famous. They fired Billy Ray right before Christmas of 1976. And you're like, okay, well, it's the middle of the season, that's when firings are made. But the backstory here is that Ray convinced the Hawks early in his tenure as coach to host Christmas parties. Christmas was his thing. He would buy young players skates. He would take care of the families. He, he took care of everybody because you got to think back in, in the Billy Ray era, guys were not making enough money to, you know, a lot of these guys had to work other jobs. So it wasn't you're a hockey player and that's your career for a lot of these guys. So Billy Ray made sure that Christmas was a special timer on the Blackhawks. He sort of had to convince ownership to take care of this, and it was a very, very important thing for him and and the weirdest thing I found this story in a book called chicken soup for the soul hooked on hockey. So Billy Ray's son, Bill tells the story. He says early on in his tenure, he convinced the Blackhawks ownership to have a Christmas party for the players and their families. Santa would come, everybody would receive a gift and it would be a day to gather together as a family. The Christmas party became a tradition for the young players. Dad did something very special on his own. He gave them a new pair of skates for Christmas as a surprise. So that's something I did not know. I knew he was fired around Christmas, but I didn't know that Christmas to Billy Ray was so symbolic and so meaningful, which makes it that much worse <laughs> that, Yeah, that, that happened to Billy Ray.
0: That much more painful and just, like, that entire story, you're just like, ooh, that's a gut punch. Ooh, that's a gut punch too. And it just kind of keeps coming, and it's like, man, they mishandled that, and it kind of – speaks like not necessarily to the era as a whole but just like the way that the Blackhawks would end up running a lot of guys out of town and obviously that plays a lot into your book one of those guys that kind of got run out of town like that was Jeremy Roenick I mean there's a lot of good stuff in the book about his uh, run-ins with Patrick Waugh his relationship with Mike Keenan his style of play just all that kind of stuff that Really endeared him to Blackhawks fans, and really, honestly, made black a Blackhawks fan out of me. And I know you feel very similarly about Jeremy. And then I also did love that you, of course, had to include the scene from Swingers that made him a legend in the uh, (laughs) video game world. Um, I just I feel like this is probably a good time to kind of open up the stage to you and to wax poetic about what Jeremy Roenick meant to you and. Just what he meant to Blackhawks fans in general. So, Jay, take the mic. Enjoy this time.
1: Well, I think when when I started watching hockey, it was the early 90s. Um, I, I was just getting on board when they had lost the cup to the Penguins. So, at that moment, it wasn't a huge heartbreak for me. I was disappointed, but that was sort of what kicked my Hawks fandom into high gear. And Jeremy Roenick was everything that embodied that era of hockey, that era of America, you're thinking the the nineties if you're if you're i'm trying to think of maybe in your early thirties, you might not have a a reminder of what the nineties were like. It was hair metal, it was fast cars, it was cocaine, it was miami vice like that was kind of the whole vibe of the nineties and late eighties and Ronick was that guy he was flashy, he was brash, he was physical, he was an electrifying player, and for me. At that age, to watch that dude, he is the reason I fell in love with hockey. Jeremy Roenick is the reason. Just the way he played the game with reckless abandon. You know, uh, I tell a story in there. Early in his career, got hit, stuck out his tongue, and had two teeth on his tongue. And that was (laughs) sort of his initiation moment and just kept going. We've seen – you have all seen the footage of him when he was in Phoenix where Darian Hatcher broke his jaw and – is literally like pulling in his teeth and his jaw is so broken that you could see the teeth in his mouth moving around like as two separate entities that was just the way jeremy played and as a kid then who was playing football who was into the physicality that was something that sold me on sports was it was physical play you had this guy capable of scoring 50 goals and also capable of putting you through the glass and then after the game he was cocky and and a good talker and had personality. Jr. was everything that '90s hockey embodies, and and while he might not have been the best player of the era, obviously with Gretzky and Lemieux and so many others, he to me is the most memorable because of the entire package. And you mentioned the NHL '94 thing with Jeremy Roenick. That's another. That game is a big reason why I became a hockey fan because it helped me learn other players around the league. I only got to see half the Hawks games all year, right? Because right? they weren't on TV, so it was a matter of sort of watching those games which of course in my teens i didn't watch every single game I just didn't have time for that or a schedule yeah, you were that.
0: too busy chasing uh women and
1: stuff well, right no, but it was just you know you've got other priorities you've got school work you've got you can't stay up as late to watch the entire game now as an adult i have the ability to sort of carve out a schedule for myself but that game helped me do it and that's what made him so great in those video games because they took they only take a number of attributes right like speed shooting passing hitting and when you, when you plug those things in for Jeremy Roenick, they're all very high numbers. And that's why he was such a legendary video game player. And, uh, yeah, that, I write a little chapter in there about Roenick's dominance in NHL 94. Well,
0: yeah, that's very important. I mean, that's obviously, like you said, it's part of the fabric of kind of what Jer- made Jeremy Roenick such a famous guy in Chicago. You compared him, to that to his impact on that game to, like, a Bo Jackson in Tecmo Bowl or a... Uh... Well, it's another one. You used Mike Tyson like you you compared him to some of those famous athletes who were honestly their fame was helped by those video games. And you put Jeremy Roenick right in that group.
1: Yeah, I, I think when you talk about legendary video game characters, you said Tyson, Bo Jackson and Tecmo Bowl. Uh, was it Madden 04 with Michael Vick? Yes, I think yep. where he was just unstoppable, where literally could not tackle him, <laughs> he had like a hundred throw power and a hundred speed, like good luck, you know? <laughs> uh, so yeah, there, there's been a handful of those throughout history and Jeremy Roenick and NHL 94. It's not just me. Everybody who plays that game will tell you that Roenick was one of the best players in it. So yeah, that was always, uh, and it's funny. They just re I, we talked about this, by the way, they must have updated because Brent Seabrook's rating is up to a 58. Uh, up from a 46. They heard us happened.
0: making fun of them and they were like we can't have that. <laughs> they must if have we've been. lost the Madhouse Chicago hockey podcast. We've lost America.
1: Yes, I'm sure that was their that was their main thought I think. But um anyway, that's it's a game I still play. I still I have a Sega Genesis just for that game and uh come down and play it all the time. It's a lot of fun.
0: By the way, my video game of choice when I was younger, I did have NHL 94, but I played a lot of Brett Hall Hockey 95, so Getting that Brett Hull card was kind of a good uh, reminder of that, (laughs) another thing that helped me get into hockey. Speaking of guys that were kind of two-way threats and really physical, really angry edge dudes, I loved your chapter on Al Secord. I thought that was one of the best-written chapters in the book. It was super compelling and super interesting, kind of the way that you captured his impact on the ice and just what made him such a unique player. And I thought it was a great like kind of summation of kind of the, what you were trying to do in the book, which was to celebrate guys who maybe don't get the headlines that they should. What made Secord so special to you?
1: Well, this is another guy I sort of had to learn about because he was out right before I got into the game. But there's a lot of guys in this book where you say, you look back on what they accomplished and it's sort of amazing that they're not, more held in more regard nationally and C I think Steve Lormer is one of those guys, Doug Wilson. That's actually Doug Wilson's a chapter. I had to go back and fix because when I wrote it, he was not in the hall of fame. Now he is in the hall of fame. So I had to rewrite that one a little bit, Yep. but he, he, here's, let me, let me just, I'll read from the book here in the history of hockey. There are hundreds of players who could put up big goal totals. Even a larger group could put up penalty minutes and punch the opponent about the head, face and neck. LC chord may have been the finest example of someone from both groups. Secord, uh, who was traded to Chicago from Boston in December of twenty of nineteen eighty, scored forty plus goals three times, including a fifty-four goal campaign in eighty-two-eighty three. He's eighteenth all-time in franchise history with two hundred and thirteen goals and six all-time with four point five seven goals per game. Impressive, right? Secord also ranks third all-time in Blackhawks history in Pelly minutes, one thousand four hundred and twenty-six behind only Chris Chelios, 1,495, and Keith Magnuson, 1,440. And Secord, while he was this great scorer, James, knew that you know playing with Dennis Savard as often as he did and that his job was to kind of make the star player look better and to protect him. That was a different, you know, not that long ago, there was the idea of you skate an enforcer on your top line. Not all the time, but if you if the, if the other team has a, an enforcer on it, it was sometimes known that you would put a guy like Bob Probert would sometimes skate with Steve Eiserman because the other team knew that if they were going to take a run at Eiserman, that Probert was going to be right there, right? Secord was the same thing, but <laughs> he's also one of the guys who, in theory, you probably should have been protecting right? because he was such a valuable scorer and such a valuable player. But just a stone-cold badass, Al Secord, and th- this was really the fun part of the book was going back and, you know, I'd always heard of L. C. Cord and and old heads will be like, no one's tougher than Z. Cord. And you're like, oh, okay, sure. Whatever you say, <laughs> uncle Tony, whatever, you know what I mean? Like you sort of shoe off the comments, but then you go back and read about this stuff. And it's, it's incredible uh, how great. And I knew he was a great player, but going back and seeing the, like his rank in history and those two g- categories is amazing because, I don't think anyone's ever going to pass Magnuson and Chelios in penalty minutes. Uh-huh. It's just a different era. But right. for him to and Chelios, of course, was a guy who had a huge impact on the team too. But man, to to put up those numbers and be in the box that often, <laughs> that's tough to do.
0: I'm sorry, you swung the door open. It has to happen. The band aid has to be ripped off. Yeah, I know. Chapter eight is about Chris Chelios and the evolution in the attitudes of Ajay Zawaski towards Chris Chelios, who incurred your ire in more ways than I could even count in the book. You did a really nice job of uh, listing out all the grievances that you had against Chris Chelios over the years. How did you go from that level of vitriol that saw you write multiple blog posts about him on multiple websites to a grudging respect in the heart of a Jay Zawoski? How did you get to that point? Yeah,
1: I. for those that have followed my work for a long time, I've never been overly kind to Chris Chelios, and I – forgave him in the book and, and James you a question well, how did I get there well I got there by writing the book by remembering all the weird crap Bill Wirtz did to his star players all you know the way negotiations went the way players were treated and you look back on it, you say you know what as much as it irritated me that Chris Chelios would sort of rub the the cup in the face of Hawks fans he had every right to do that because he gave everything he had to the team and they told him he was done no, no, Chris. You know you don't have any hockey left, man. Your your career's over. You you have nothing left to offer. You're you're at the end of your rope. Uh, you know, go finish off your career somewhere else. Okay, sure, yeah. Then he went on to play ten more years for the Red Wings. <laughs> ten more years with the Detroit Red Wings, and finished second for the Norris Trophy in two thousand one, two thousand two, at age forty. So you can't blame, and I. You know, it was hard. It was hard for me to see a guy who, right next to Jeremy Roenick, was so important to me in my development as a Hawks fan. Like those two, it was one and two: Roenick and Chelios. You would say them like you say Taves and Kane. They were synonymous in that era. And you know, I think the fact that he was traded to Detroit made it that much more painful. With Roenick, it was the it was the Phoenix Coyotes who hadn't existed yet, so I had no feelings about that. I was like, oh, it sucks. He's not here anymore. With Chelios, that was your captain. I mean, that is the equivalent of the – well, there's not really a – I guess it would be the equivalent of the Hawks trading Jonathan Taves to the Blues. Oh, right? Right? Like, well, in the, in now it,
0: you've upset everybody. Right.
1: Because the Red Wings rivalry isn't what it used to be, and it right. hasn't been for some time. That would be the equivalent of, the, of trading Taves to the Blues or in the heyday, the Canucks. That was – and it, even beyond that, it's, it's different because it's an original six rival. It's, it's almost unthinkable that that would be the outcome of a Chris Chelios trade anywhere but Detroit. And he, and he said that, and I said that in the book. He was asked by Mike North from the scorer, like, is there anything you anywhere you wouldn't play? He said that I'll never play for Detroit. Well, it was a safe assumption for him because who would ever imagine the Blackhawks trading their heart and soul player, a local guy, to their most hated rival while they were a perennial cup contender? Right, It wasn't like, okay, it's the Red Wings, but they're not very good, so who cares? No, you were making a perennial cup contender all that much better. And that's what made it so painful. And I, I think I took that out on Chelios unfairly. And look, there is an element of taunting in what Chelios was doing. Right. But why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? When you gave everything you had to the Hawks and they just turned their back on you, why wouldn't you come back and rub it in their face? So he, as painful as it was in the moment... Writing the book brought me back to that time and space with a more analytical mind saying, okay, look, like it sucks that Chelios did that, but wouldn't you do the same thing? Wouldn't you be pissed if you were him? And he had every right to be pissed.
0: It it was one of, like I said, one of the more interesting chapters in the book was kind of watching you work through your (laughs) anti-Chris Chelios bias and like doing it in Real time on the page and kind of the conclusion that you came to was that, you know, like you said, he had every right to taunt the Blackhawks and it wasn't his fault that he got traded. Yeah, he was a jag about it, but I'd be I'd have been pissed, too. If I got traded to a rival, that would have told me that you don't think I can do anything to your team. Like I probably would have been the exact same way. But of course. I'm a vindictive jerk. So yes, everybody I, knows that. Yes. That I'm well-known reputation. All right. We'll be right back with more here with Jay Zawoski on the Madhouse Chicago hockey podcast.
1: The Madhouse Chicago hockey podcast is made possible by our friends at Marishka's in Crest Hill, 604 Theodore street. Their family owned and operated since 1933. You've heard us talking about Mariska's since day one of the Madhouse podcast. And with good reason, some of the best food you will ever have. Go visit our friends in Crest, hill try the world famous poor boy the steaks the chops the seafood the double baked potato the mountain of onion rings everything you taste at mariska's will have you coming back again and again visit their website mariska's.com or their facebook page facebook.com slash mariska's that's m-e-r-i-c-h-k-a-s close only on christmas easter the fourth of july and thanksgiving go visit our friends at mariska's in crest hill The Manhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Fry the Coop and FrytheCoop.com. Locations in Oaklawn, Elmhurst, Westtown, and coming soon to Prospect Heights. Go try some of the best Nashville hot chicken, not only in Chicagoland, but on the planet. Get yourself the chicken tenders, the donut chicken sandwich, the mac and cheese. Everything you taste at Fry the Coop is fresh. Everything you taste at Fry the Coop is amazing. The best hot chicken I've ever had, and I am a connoisseur. So go visit our friends in Oaklawn, Elmhurst, West Town, and coming soon to Prospect Heights. Come get your happiness at Fry the Coop. Place your order online at frythecoop.com and grab your food from the pickup window. It's safe, it's easy, it's fast. Fry the Coop, frythecoop.com. Welcome back into this special
0: edition of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. There are a couple more things I do want to get to. Obviously, there is... So much in the book that we're not going to get to. So don't feel like you've already read the book by listening to this podcast. I assure you there is a ton of great stuff in here on Eddie Belfour, Keith Magnuson. There's great, great stuff on Duncan Keith. Really enjoyed that chapter. Dennis Savard, Eddie Olchek all get really good name checks. So do the early aughts Blackhawks, which we won't talk about that. We'll let you get sad reading (laughs) that on your own. The one thing I did want to get to, and I think it's really appropriate right now since we've kind of been in this mode of looking at the big picture of the franchise and kind of looking at the direction that Stan Bowman has brought the team in, is you had a really good chapter about the architects of the dynasty. And we've always had the discussion on this, on our show about Dale Talon and Stan Bowman, who deserves more credit. And I know that you get into that in the book, but you also made sure to give Mike Smith a good amount of the credit for at least the beginnings of this dynasty. Why did you make sure that he was included in all of this?
1: Well, I think it's important to, you know, Dale Talon gets a lot of credit, and however you want to, whatever percentage of credit you want to give, either Bowman or uh, Dale Talon is up to you. That's fine. Like, that's all, That's all for you to decide. But you can't ignore the impact that Mike Smith had On this team, Mike Smith was the GM from September of 2000 to October of 03. So it was a short run, and there were some really big mistakes (laughs) made (laughs) by Mike Smith. Let's not not pretend. There was the Alexander Karpatsev trade uh, for Brian McCabe, who went on to be an all-star. Everybody knows that move. There was the Alpo Suhonen hire as head coach. Wrong guy, wrong team, wrong time. But in 02, he drafted with the 54th overall pick. Duncan Keith, three cups, two Norris trophies, a Conn Smythe trophy. Next season, with the 14th overall pick, he drafted Brent Seabrook. 38 picks later, he chose Corey Crawford, goaltender Corey Crawford. So there's three huge picks for the franchise's history that were not surefire. Look, like T- Kane was the consensus number one pick. There mm-hmm. was some conversation about some other guys, but it was Kane. Everybody knew it was Kane. When Taves fell to three, that was an obvious pick at that time, too. So I'm not taking away the fact that Talon made those picks. Look, he had to do the right thing, and he did. Great, okay? But identifying Duncan Keith, who at the time was tiny, this tiny little offensive defenseman from Michigan State, this is also from an era where college hockey players did not transition to the league as often as they do now. It was more of a junior hockey feeder system than it was... College, and it still is, but you see a lot more college guys make it these days. Brent Seabrook, 14th overall. We know the 14th overall pick is a, is a bit of a crapshoot, right? And he picked him there, and it worked out. So, and, and obviously, Corey Crawford. So those are difficult draft picks to make where the pick was not so obvious, and what he envisioned from those three players is exactly what he got. Duncan Keith turned into maybe the best defenseman in franchise history. I mean, the fact that you can have a conversation about that when Pierre Plot and Chris Chelios played for your franchise is remarkable, right? Corey Crawford, who is placed in Hawks history, we've discussed ad nauseum over the last few years, one of the best three or four goalies in the history of the franchise. And Brent Seabrook, one of your most trustworthy, uh, dependable workhorse type guys stay at home defensemen of the cup dynasty and era without him and his leadership as well maybe they don't win two of those three or whatever so mike smith definitely deserves credit sure he made his share of mistakes as every gm does but those three picks in particular cannot be ignored when you're evaluating who gets the credit for the dynasty
0: yeah you are 100 percent correct about that and i really i enjoyed like kind of seeing the credit the share that you kind of split up between those three guys those three architects of what ended up being an era of like 11 to 12 years of really successful hockey and how long it really did take to kind of put all of that together so that was definitely probably I'd say it's in at least my top three chapters of the book if I had to rank them which is obviously really difficult because there is just so many good nuggets of information in this book and I would highly encourage Any Blackhawks fan worth their salt, or if you know a Blackhawks fan, make sure you go and pick this thing up. The men and moments that made the Chicago Blackhawks the Big 50. You nailed so many key elements of Blackhawks history, and I do, from the bottom of my heart, want to congratulate you on this book. It's really well written, really entertaining. I knocked it out in a couple of days. It is, as you've said before, probably a great bathroom book to read a chapter or two while you're sitting on the john in the morning. Whatever you want to do with this book, make sure that you do go pick it up, preferably at an independent bookseller. But if you're going to pick it up anywhere, just make sure you do it. Jay Zawoski, best-selling author, one of my dear friends. Thank you so much for doing this interview. This was a lot of fun, man. And all the success in the world on this book. I know it's going to sell a lot of copies and you're going to make a lot of Blackhawks fans happy. So congratulations on this labor of love, dude. It's great.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope fans like it. I've gotten a lot of good feedback from it. And I say, when I edited the book, I didn't hate it. So (laughs) maybe that as good of an endorsement as I can give it myself was, well, I read that again and didn't think it was terrible, which is big (laughs) for me. So uh, yeah, thank you for the promotion. Uh, If anyone's interested in a signed copy, uh, I did send some to bookies bookstores. There's one in Homewood. There's one in Mount Greenwood. You can look them up, bookiesbookstores.com, and they've got a whole bunch of signed copies at those two locations. Also, if you'd want to personalize one, you can go to madhousepod.com book and fill out that Google form, and I can send out signed copies. Uh, I just ship them from my little office down here. So, Uh, Lots of ways to get the book, but of course, it's available anywhere starting on Tuesday, November 10th. So uh, my natural instinct is to wrap up the podcast, so I think I'm going to do that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. Quick reminder, too, make sure to check out our merchandise shop, MadhousePodMerch.com, powered by our friends at Triple Threat Sports. For all your team outfitting needs, call Chris, 708-478-6090, or email Chris at triplethreadsports.com. Hopefully some actual hockey news happens soon, but until it does, have a great week. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast. The Madhouse Chicago Hockey Podcast was brought to you by Triple Threat Sports, Mariska's and Crest Hill,
0: Dr. Squatch, and by Fry the Coop.
1: When the big wireless carriers start trying to get you to splurge your tax return on the latest nonsense this year, just tune it out. With Straight Talk Wireless, you can get a Samsung Galaxy A51 for just $199 on America's best networks. Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Savings may vary. See straighttalk.com.
0: Aaron's makes getting the furniture, electronics, and appliances you need easy and affordable. Great deals, easy approvals, free delivery. That's Aaron's, the rent-to-own power of the AA team.